Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring traditionalist eschatology. For those of you who may not know, eschatology means the study of final things, and in particular, we'll be looking at the afterlife. My guest is Charles Upton, the former beatnik poet who subsequently became engaged in metaphysics and the traditionalist movement and is author of over 20 books, including Folk Metaphysics, Mystical Meanings in Traditional Folk Songs and Spirituals, Cracks in the Great Wall, UFOs, and Traditional Metaphysics, Knowings in the Arts of Metaphysics, Cosmology, and the Spiritual Path, The Science of the Greater Jihad, Essays in Principial Psychology, Vectors of the Counter-Initiation, The Course and Destiny of Inverted Spirituality, and The Way Forward for Perennialism After the Antinomianism of Fritjof Schuon. Charles is based in Lexington, Kentucky, and now I'll switch over to the Internet video. Welcome, Charles. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. Yeah, glad to be back. And we'll be discussing one of my favorite topics, eschatology, traditionalist eschatology, is interesting to me. And I know we're going to approach this topic both philosophically and, and scholarly, but also in terms of some of your own personal explorations. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in traditionalist eschatology or in, in the sense of, uh, what is the nature of the afterlife? It's, it's basically taken from all the world's spiritual traditions. It's not, it doesn't, they don't have a, a particular take on it, on it themselves, just sort of a survey of, um, you know, of what the different traditions say. Although Rene Guénon made a point of, of saying he didn't believe in the literal reality of reincarnation. All, which is a kind of a subtle thing because it kind it's kind of real, you know. And on the other hand, it's kind of not real. So, but that 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 can. So, I'd I'd like to start with with just some uh, some experiences w which have to do, you know, with with perhaps one time I got close close to death, and also experiences with people who have been close to me who have passed on. So, that's a good starting point. In the 70s, in the early 70s, I was uh, hippying around in British Columbia. I, I went north to Canada. I didn't have to, to escape the draft because I had asthma and I had a, you know, chronic eye inflammation thing. And so, you know, the, the doctor said, don't worry, you know, 4F. You know, I didn't, ha I didn't have to, you know, to go to Vietnam. But since the hippies were traveling to Canada for that reason. It was sort of an exodus. I said, well, you know, I'm going to go too. And, um, and actually also because down here I, I had met, you know, my first serious live-in girlfriend who was um, 
although she grew up in New York, she she was from British, had been living in, with her pa uh, parents in British Columbia and Vancouver. So, uh, so, you know, we just, we, we, we went, we went north and, um, one of my experiences there was an automobile accident. I remember I was driving our hippie van and I, and I, I took a, a left and I, I was, I was going, oh, as I was turning and then, I, and I wasn't paying attention and a car went wham, it hit me. And I was, uh, I was knocked out. I got a uh, concussion. And I remember I came to briefly while, while the ambulance was loading me on, onto the, you know, the, stretcher or whatever it was. And uh, so they, they just took me in and, you know, I, ca I came to, they x-rayed me and they found I didn't have a fractured skull or a subdural hematoma. And so they, you know, shot me with some penicillin and gave me some pain pills and, and put me on the street, you know, socialized medicine. They didn't even ask. I, I was I was there illegally, but they didn't even ask, you know. Things are not that cool in Canada now, but they're pretty cool then. So, um, but during that experience, um, the only thing I remember is, is a, I had come before like a review board or something like that. There was a semicircle of figures in front of me, maybe seven of them. And, you know, and I got the, 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 the sense, although not explicitly, but just that they were giving me my marching orders for the next period of my life. Okay, this is this is the end of one of your lives in this life, and here's the next life in this life, and this is this is your instructions. I didn't hear the instructions; I just got the sense that, that that's what they were doing. So I called them my board of karma. So that's probably the closest I came personally to a near-death experience. Um, so I've got a list here, that, but then um, it's interesting. Um, after I got back from Canada, a lot of things happened to me in a very short period of time. I broke up with, with my girlfriend. I got in the automobile accident. I um, hippied around in, in, you know, the communes way up in, in, in the wilds of British Columbia, running into some very interesting but very disordered people who are obviously not going to be able to continue to be the kind of farmers they thought they could be with no problem, you know, because they were smoking too much dope and all this. And then uh, uh, my parents, who were still in uh, San Rafael, California, uh, contacted me and they said, well, uh, Lou Welch, uh, Lou Welch passed away, uh, not passed away, Lou Welch has disappeared who was a beat generation poet who's, who was my poetic mentor, you know. And uh, and and then they sent me another clipping and said, well, Lou Welch has been seen again. Apparently he's been found or it was uncertain about what was going on. So that was it. So, so I came back. As I came back, friends drove me back to uh, California because I got to the point where I saw – I think I, I think I've out, – out, outstayed my welcome here because I was someplace way up in Prince Rupert near the uh, Alaska Panhandle with with some, you know, th this were the days where you go into town, you say, where do the hippies live? Oh, they live down there in such and such street. You go down and they give you a place to sleep. It didn't last long, but there was, there it was, you know, and uh, so I was, um, and then uh, RCMP officer came and, and uh, you know, he, he uh, lifted me <laughs> from the table I was at and took me to his car. And, and he was very happy because he'd finally, 
you know, got his man. They always get their man. And I said, could you show me the picture of the guy you're looking for? And it looked just like me, except he had blue eyes and I had green eyes. And so I said, green eyes. And he went, oh, <laughs> too bad. So I realized this was the time. Now is the time to go home. You know, When that starts to happen, go home. So I went back um, with friends and I went to Gary Snyder's, uh, you know, whatever it is, his land in the Sierra foothills near Nevada City, Kitka Dizzy. And I, I just, you know, I just met Snyder, who, I, who I'm known a little bit before. And I said, well, what, what about Lou Welch? Did he come back? And, and Snyder says, no, he never did come back. He just disappeared. So, you know, leaving a pretty much a suicide note, having traded his rifle for a handgun, which is much more convenient when you're trying to blow your brains out. And uh, so then I went home and pretty, pretty soon after that, everything started to go to hell. My father turned up with inoperable cancer. He died pretty quickly. Uh, and then the house that I'd grown up, grown up in uh, burned, taking uh, most of his beautiful paintings with it. And so it was, you know, it's like I was burning up a lot of karma very fast, you know. And uh, so this leads to uh, s some stories about Lou Welch and my father. What happened with my father, uh, I, had, I, I had a dream of him soon after he died. And uh, I, went, I, I went to this, uh, it was, it was like, like a doctor's waiting room. You know, with with patients waiting to go see the doctor, except there's this this one lady who who had a couple of Afghan hounds on, on leashes, which you don't usually don't see in a doctor's office. You know, otherwise it was just like a doctor's office waiting room. And then I went and I, I saw my father, and he was lying just on a pallet on the floor. And uh, he looked at me. And he said, "Are you here already?" Which is very interesting. And I said, uh, no, actually, I'm dreaming. You know, I'm just coming here in the dream state. And I said, well, you're dead, you know. He said, uh, or, or, or I, I guess what I did before that is, is you know, I, I tried to embrace him. But as I embraced him, he turned into a moldering corpse. In other words, if I was going to embrace him, I would embrace only death. So don't hold on. Then I let go of him again. Once again, he was, he was you know looked alive, except in another dimension. And uh, I told him he was dead. And he said, Oh, yeah. All right. All right. See you. And he got up, and he just scurried off, you know. And um, so that was that was, you know, my experience of my father after he passed on with Lou Welch. I mean, what Lou Welch did is he set this thing up where he, he was going to turn into a turkey buzzard after he died. I don't know. I don't know if anybody remembers, you know, the, 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 the famous Lou Welch buzzard cult. But this is what he did. He wrote a poem about. Uh, let's see if, if I could remember it, you know. You know, he, he says after after he dies, he says, on a marked rock following my orders, you place my meat. All care must be taken not to alarm the natives of this barbarous land who will not let us die even as we wish. With proper ceremony, disembowel what I no longer need so that it might more quickly rot and tempt my new form. 
And the new form is the buzzard, which will eat, eat Lou's body, and Lou's spirit will pass into the buzzard, and now he will be like a buzzard god. You know, that was his thing. And so many people at a certain point bought that, and they went, they went with that. And when a buzzard would fly over and say, well, there, there goes Lou, you know, I mean, he got people to, to do that, but that might not have been the best possible thing because he was trying to hold on to life through other people's memory of him, right? Which, which is very common. That's poetic immortality, right? You know, you, you, you will, uh, I mean, William Butler Yeats wrote a poem where, where he, he talked about something where, where we wrought who shall break the teeth of time, which means who shall attain poetic immortality may be remembered, you know, for generation after generation. That's so he wanted to do that. And, and so his, his afterlife was probably not as happy as it might have been. After all, he was an alcoholic suicide and suicides mysteriously, they're trying to get out of life, but they're trying to hold on to life at the same time because you know, they're making, you know, my life is my own to, to, to do with as I will. I can live. I want to. I can die if I want. And that's holding on. You know, you're not saying, God, if it's time for me to die, take me. You know, it's, it's like we have a, a prayer that we Sufis do every week. You know, um, you know, uh, make me die a lot if it's good for me to die and, and let me live if it's good for me to live. You know, that, that's the prayer. So he he wasn't in in a, in a state where he could pray that, but um, he he came back, I'm sure, to Gary Snyder because here, Gary Snyder wrote a poem about him, uh, which I know is from a dream. Snyder has some of the best dream poems that have ever been done. You just know that's a dream vision. I recognize that. So this is this is Snyder's poem about about Lou. It's called. For from Lou. And it goes, uh, Lou Welch just turned up one day, live as you and me. Damn, Lou, I said, you didn't shoot yourself after all. Yes, I did, he said. And even then I felt the tingling down my back. Yes, you did too, I said. I can feel it now. Yeah, he said. There's a basic fear between your world and mine. I don't know why. What I came to say was teach the children about the cycles, the life cycles, all the other cycles. That's what it's all about, and it's all forgot. So that's the message he got from Lou. But strangely enough, before reading that poem and about around about the same time, I had a dream about Lou Welch, which I put into this following poem. The last four lines of this poem are directly dictated, were dictated to me in the poem, in, in the dream. So, you know, this is word for word from the dream. So this is, uh, this is my dream that I had about Lou Welch around the same time. So I saw the sun set up in the distance like a temple on a plain animals crashing through forests inside its face. And my dead teacher seated on the orbit of the earth, musing on his old love for earth and sun and allowing himself sadly to forget it. This is the age when all stories have been told, the dead going on without poetry, 
and poetry telling them the truth of gravity's art. So that's what that was. And the interesting thing is, he, Lou was, was telling uh, Gary about the cycles. Telling, and, and, and I was seeing him sit, sit, you know, it's like he was sitting on the orbit of the Earth looking toward the sun, and that's a cycle, you know, that's, that's a, a circle. And um, so that was Lou Welch. And then it, it, one other... One other thing is a couple of times, it's like he sent me a, buzz, a buzzard feather. Like I found a buzzard feather hiking around. One time, my wife and I were hiking in Indian Valley College, if you know where that is, you know, up near Nevada, north along 101. And uh, um, it's funny, I, I heard something like the sound of a cougar, you know, that breathy kind of, you know, whatever sound they make. And I didn't, I've never seen a cougar in Marin County, though they have been reported. And uh, then I looked and I found a buzzard feather on, on the uh, ground. And I thought, well, this is from Lou, you know. And it's either that, I forget, or, or an earlier one that I got in a similar way. Um, see, the funny thing is, the reason I went to Indian Valley College is I had this terrible sensitivity at the base of my skull. Just felt awful. I had to put my hands over that part of my uh, of my body, or or I would not. I, my thoughts would be totally disarranged. So something was coming in and and was difficult, you know, at that point. Uh, and and so the thought was, I got to go to Indian Valley College, and so that's how I, I found that feather, you know. So either that feather or an earlier one, I sent to. Somehow there was an ad for a Dzogchen Lama who was living in Tibet who would pray for people in the Bardo after, after you know, in, in the after-death state. So I said, well, I, I, I Xeroxed up a, a picture of Lou Welch and I put it in a $20 bill and that feather and I sent, sent it, you know, through the mails. God knows if it ever got there to the uh, Dzogchen Lama, you know, because I knew Lou, need, Lou needed some help. And uh, then the the other feather, I remember I was probably smoking dope, and I decided I'm going to, because I can never keep magical objects. I, I've, I've, when I was dabbling in magic, I would produce magical objects or, or be given magical objects, and they were almost just, you know, they, they, they collected so much projection so fast, they became heavy and, you know, I would always give them away. This time I burned that feather in our fireplace, with the same yeah. feather, a different feather. Yeah, I, I think that was a feather earlier than the one I was talking uh, talking about, or it may have been later. I don't remember. There were two anyway, and this one I burned, and uh, you know, in, in my mind's eye, Lou Welch appeared, you know, as if he was sort of in the coals of the fire, and he said, "Things don't change here as fast as I thought they would." So that was the state he was in, you know, which is probably common for people who are, you know, suicide. I mean, uh, Dante, you know, in the Inferno had a, uh, a circle of the suicides, you know, and uh, they turned into trees. They were rooted, you know, they couldn't move. They were rooted to the earth. It's funny. They wanted to get away from the earth, you know, so bad, but they end up rooted to the earth and, and unable to move. So... So that's Lou Welch. You know, we hope he's moved on. You know, and I think I think he's moving on. He's he's somewhere better than that now. I trust. 
So, but uh, then let's see, my wife had a dream about Rama Kumaraswamy, who's, you know, the son of Ananda Kumaraswamy, one of the co-founders of the traditionalist school. And uh, I remember before he died, I just had a dream of him just looking radiantly happy, which he did not in life because he had a very long, long case of bone cancer, which went for year after year after year. And he would almost die and he would get the last rites and then he'd have a remission and he'd come back and he'd be cancer free for a while. And then it would come back and it went on and on. So, but here he was looking happier than I ever remember him. And soon after that, he passed on. And then soon after he passed on, my wife had a dream of him and he was standing on a seashore uh, beyond which was this vast ocean. And uh, he said, he said to her, uh, well, you know, I am dying. He didn't say I'm dead. He said, I am dying. He's in the process, you know, of, of death, which is not just simple, right? And um, he said, and, and, and you, you're, you're one of the people I, I wanted to, uh, you know, to contact and, and say goodbye to before I passed on. And he would talk to her. Then he would keep looking out to the, to the vast ocean and looking back to her and looking out to the ocean. So that was, you know, experience of him. I trust she actually did know him. Oh, yeah, we knew him. We knew him. And, uh, you know, we would go, we only met him two or three times, once in Louisville and once in his house in Connecticut. And, uh, but we were in contact by phone a lot. And, and uh, he was really a spiritual guide. Of all the traditionalists, he was the closest thing to an effective spiritual guide. You know, because he was he was a traditional Catholic. He, um, you know, he he actually we, we I have on my computer a whole book he wrote of dialogue with Mother Teresa. Except all he got from Mother Teresa is a couple of little short postcard length things. What he was trying to do, he saw the Catholic Church throwing away its its ancient traditions after Vatican II, and he he wanted Mother Teresa to see what he saw. And uh, to, uh, you know, to go to the Pope and say, you can't do this. Mother Teresa was not interested in doing that. And she just said, oh, Ram, you know, you, you're hurting Jesus. You know, we, we have to obey the Pope. You know, otherwise, we'll hurt Jesus. And that's as far as he got. You know. He was actually Mother Teresa's cardiologist, you know, because uh, he, he was a surgeon, you know, a heart surgeon at one point. Then he got ill, and so he, he quit that practice, retrained as a psychiatrist, and was ordained as a traditional Catholic priest by lineages, you know, one or another lineage of bishops in the traditional church, you know, which is the church that believes all the popes since um, uh, Pius XII uh, are invalid, and, and, that, and that the Vatican II, Second Vatican Council, was the great apostasy. But he was ordained by one of those bishops, and he worked with Father Malachi Martin in the uh, uh, New York area as an exorcist for a while. So he had a lot of experience exorcism, you know, and it's understandable because he wanted, he really wanted to know, because if you're going to do exorcism, you have to be able to separate mental illness from, from demonic possession or obsession. And so... To be a psychiatrist at the same time was, you know, certainly useful. So, um, 
you know, that that's what that's what he did. And then you know, he was he was very helpful to us. And my wife would not be a traditional Catholic today. I'm, I'm reasonably sure if it wasn't for him. So um, anyway, but last I'm going to talk about this is a little difficult. And I was wondering if I was going to talk about this, but it does illustrate something. And so I think it needs to be said is my uh, my wife's mother. Um, you know, a very difficult person. Um, she passed away some years ago. Very narcissistic, actually very cruel. Not just cruel through uh, insensitivity, but cunningly cruel, deliberately cruel. And he, she would use lies for the purpose, of, for the explicit purpose of hurting people. So, you know, not, not in the best state. So, um, uh, so she had apparently something like a near-death experience, which she never, you know, explained to us. But uh, she was once in the hospital, um, very near death, and then the doctor came out. I wasn't there. I think we were, this is before we had moved to Kentucky. We were still in California. And the doctor came out and says, well, to the family, and says, well, I'm terribly sorry. I think we've lost her. And pretty soon after that, this minister appeared. Uh and he just walked in and he says, you know, is, is, is a Lola, Lola Tackett here, you know? And um, I said, well, yeah, you know, she, she's, she, she may have passed on. He says, I, I, I need to pray for her. Where is she? And, and he went and he prayed for her. And he said, and they said, well, who are you? Are you a friend of the family? Oh, yes, uh, her husband, uh, her husband called me. Well, the truth is her husband had not called. Him. Somebody else called him, probably an angel because he just knew she needed that and came from nowhere, prayed for her, and she got better. She, she did not die. And when she came back, she said, well, now I've seen, now I've seen the other side, more or less something on those lines, and, and I've lost my fear of death, which is very common, what people say about near-death experiences. The problem is um, she still had no fear of God. She had lost her fear of death, which is good, you know, to the degree that, that you know, a, a neurotic, obsessive fear of death is not, you know, is, is going to stand in your way in life as well as, as, well as in, in death. And so that's good, but uh, it didn't improve her character at all. Uh, she was just as cruel, you know, till, till, the day she died. And I think this is, shows one of the limitations of some of the near-death experiences that are being reported now. I hear things like, well, I found out that there was no judgment. Too much. You know, whatever we do, it's okay. Even Hitler is immediately forgiven. It's no problem. God, God is, is unconditional love. Well, God is unconditional love, but as the Eastern Orthodox, um, uh, you know, saints or sages will say, um, God is unconditional love. But if you resist that love, uh, it becomes hellfire for you. So that love is also hell, depending upon your state. And so what I see with these near-death experiences, I mean, they're not all like that. Some people 
you know, have a near-death experience and they go to hell temporarily, right? Because they need to be scared straight. And more or less, they're being told, well, you know, this is what's going to happen to you, Buster, if you, if you keep on the way you are. Look at this. You want this? And, and you know, they will often call to God for, for a, to save them, and God will save them and take them out of hell. Well, you know, th th that happens. But there's a tendency to say what we've learned is that there's no judgment. And I don't think that's a good idea because with near-death experiences, they're near death. They're not death. They're not death. The, the people come back to life, and apparently the, the, the beings on the other side, whether they be angels or or guides or whatever you call them or, or, or deceased relatives or God, you know, will say, well, you can't stay here. It's time for you to, to, to go back. And they, and they very often say, no, no, I want to stay. And, uh, sorry, you have to go back. You have work to do and you, that you agreed to. I mean, that, that's the general story you're getting from today's near-death experiences. And, um, you know, because the, the, the reason that there is no judgment, as far as I can see, is because they haven't died and the people on the other side know they're not going to die. They're going to go back. So my feeling is people who actually, you know, die and, and do not go back, the karma that has been stored in this life, all the all the, the effects of their actions in this life starts to come toward them and dawn upon them. And uh, it becomes a series of veils over that unconditional love of God to, you know, to the point where, you know, they will, they will go into some other state, some, some sometimes very hellish. Um, and, you know, because if there's no judgment, then God is not just. And if God is not just, then he's imperfect. We can't have that because that's not God. Whatever you're talking about, that's not God. So the people who who have an experience of unconditional love, no, no, no matter what they done had done, God loves me no matter what I did. Well, in a sense, he did because he created you perfect and he sees you in your, in your original perfection. And he loves his own creations as, as reflections of himself. That's true. But there are other levels going on. What you, what you have done with the gift of existence. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's necessary to accept that, that, you know, there is also a judgment. And, and it's interesting also, the people who, uh, who say, oh, I saw that, that God was, uh, was just pure unconditional love without judgment tend to be people who said, I expected God to be the God I was taught to, 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 uh, to believe in, who, who was vengeful and mean and was going to tell me I was going to go to hell and I was a horrible person. So obviously people have, have been taught a very negative view of God. They don't, they don't look at him as loving at all. They look at him as, as vengeful. And so this is a compensatory experience to that uh, bad teaching about God. No, you know, look, here, here I am as unconditional love. That's what I really am. And But people get, get those experiences to teach them something they need to know for this life. This does not mean this is what will finally happen to them when they, they, they pass on for good and, you know, the entirety of their life has to be weighed and evaluated, you know, to determine what their next state of existence will be. 
um, it, it, it's something, it, it's, it's an inspiration for their spiritual life now while they're alive, you know, because that's what it would have to be because everybody on that, on the other side knows they're coming back. And so they, they are given the, the experiences they need to help them through their, their various, you know, spiritual problems and, and, and impasses in this life. It's not the same thing as judgment. Uh, Father Sarah from Rose, who wrote a book, very interesting book called The Soul After Death. You know, he said something similar. You know, people haven't gotten enough far enough in, into the death experience because they haven't actually died. Therefore, they haven't encountered judgment yet. There's a, a degree of judgment in, in the idea of the life review, you know, particularly the kind of life review where you experience yourself all the pain that you have caused other people. That's that's beginning to be a real judgment. Okay, but so in any case, uh, the the idea that you know you, when you die you're off the hook. I mean that that's what any suicide believes, except he believes he or she is off the hook because he will he will cease to exist. You know, but it's the same problem. You know, I mean, you know, d d death death is is the free ticket out of karma. No, it's not. Death is the dawning and the final evaluation of karma. So, just you know, want to give that um, caution to people who, you know, have certain attitudes toward near-death experiences. You know, I mean, seeing the near-death thing, there's there there's a constant attempt to standardize it. You know, and and also a lot of people are working against standardizing it because they know. That, that experience has many more dimensions than that can be put into this simple, you know, the simple story is <clears throat> I was in the hospital. I was really sick. Then I was out of my body and I saw my body, you know, on the, on the bed. And then I flew out of the hospital and I went into darkness. And, and then there was a point of light appeared in the darkness, which turned into a tunnel. And I went through the tunnel and I came out on the other side and I came out maybe into a beautiful earthly paradise. And I met dead relatives and I met angels and guides. And, and then, you know, and, and I was immersed in, in, in divine love. And then and then the divine love uh, opened the door to something like infinite knowledge. And then, uh, you know, I went beyond that even and in, in to, to, to higher reaches where, where I met God himself and, and, and I transcended my individuality. And, you know, well, that's that's an interesting that, that that's a, an important story. It's a sort of a dominant theme in all, in all those uh, experiences. But there's so many ex exceptions to that, so many other ways it can go. And I think it's just important that people keep realizing that, you know, don't standardize it because it, it will become a cliche and, um, you know, that will not be helpful. So, because there's something, near-death experiences are like the LSD of the 21st century. You know, because LSD, I was there when it, when it first came in, and there was about four years when it was immensely transformative because it broke set. I mean, the idea you can take a pill and get an experience like this and see God or whatever you're supposed to do, it, it just, it just you know, had, a, had an incredibly transformative and disordering effect on society. It was powerful. And now you don't hear about it so much. I mean, there's, you know, psychedelics are creeping back as treatments for uh, depression or, or alcoholism. And, you know, there's maybe some application there. But this whole spiritual revolution that came with LSD, it didn't last long because it, it was it was 
90% a break in set, not just the effect of a drug. So maybe near-death experiences will have a similar fate, or maybe not, But because uh, they seem to be more valid than LSD. You know, first, you didn't ask for them. You didn't say, I'm going to take a drug and see what it does to me. You know, you... you you know, this is something that happens to you. And, and, and so there's obviously some something deeper in your destiny that is being manifest than just deciding to, uh, to, to take a psychedelic. But, you know, if it gets too standardized, the same thing will happen to near-death experiences that happened to LSD, which is, oh, yeah, LSD, sure. You know, <laughs> remember a hippie, a hippie I met in, in British Columbia once at, at, at like one of those, it was a youth hostel or, 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 or some kind of temporary shelter where people were hippie, hippies were staying as they were traveling through. And this one guy was saying, uh, ah, unity is boring. You know, it's like LSD, ah, you know, you take LSD, you're united with infinite truth. So what, you know, <laughs> I want something else. I want something more entertaining. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, um, it could become a cliche, but let's hope it doesn't. That's all I'm saying. But what an interesting exposition. It, it seems you're really, uh, A, speaking from the heart, talking about your own personal experiences. And I get the impression that you're saying that the traditionalist approach accepts uh, sort of the folkways having to do, like, uh, for example, uh, dreams and the intersection between dreams and the afterlife. Yeah, it, it would accept that because that, that that's, you know, um, that's important in, in Sufism. It's important. It's reported from, uh, from Christian saints and, and, you know, other uh, Catholic believers and Eastern Orthodox believers. And, and it's certainly that's, that, that's part of, of the, the universal lore of, of human spiritual experience. So that's accepted, you know. It's not, you know, particularly emphasized, but uh, so what I could do at this point is now there are two of the writers who have something interesting to say about eschatology are René Guénon, who's pretty much the founder of the traditional school, and Fritjof Schoen, uh, who is the school's last real leader, you know, not that everybody accepted him as that, but that's, you could call him that, and um and what, what uh, Schoen contributed is he, he just did an overview of eschatology, and you know, he called it universal eschatology. It was a uh, chapter in his book, Survey of Metaphysics and Esoterism. And he just, he just talked about the different, I mean, his view was the different ideas of the afterlife from the different traditions, you know, some of which accept reincarnation, some, some of which don't. For example, have um, basically have to do with the state of soul of the person, you know, going into the next world. And there's different levels depending upon the spiritual development of the person who goes in. Different levels that that one experiences, and these levels are five actually, and they are okay. The first one is just you know the 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 saints who who are immediately translated into glory after they die, you know, who, who die and go right to heaven because, you know, they're purified to the degree that there's nothing holding them back. And they come into the presence of God and the beatific vision 
you know, rather swiftly. And that's one. The next one is the one talked about in the pure, uh, the pure land of Amida Buddha from, uh, um, you know, that, 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 that kind of Buddhism, which, which, you know, which believes in, uh, the Buddha more or less as a divine figure whose help you invoke. And, you know, there's the Western paradise of Amida, which is a pure land. A pure land is like a, a land, a land on the imaginal plane, which is understood to be an apparition. And yet it's, it's very effective and potent. Nonetheless, it's not just a mere apparition. It's an apparitional land. And this is where the story is people go and, and they become as if they were little embryos again inside of huge lotus flowers on, on the vast lake of the other world. And the lotus flowers open and they slowly sit there un, under a rain of grace, as it were, and ripen to the point where they can attain Buddhahood and liberation slowly just, you know, ripe, ripening in, in this elevated environment until finally, you know, they too can uh, have, have what the Christians would call the beatific vision, but it just takes a while. Okay. The next lower level is purgatory and purgatory is where, you know, people pass on and, and in, in their essence, they're oriented toward God and toward truth. And that's what they've chosen. And yet there's a lot of purification they haven't done. There's a lot of uh, impurities and karma, you know, uh, uh, associated, you know, attached to their soul and, and that they have to be purified of it. And, and, and this is more or less uh, a state of suffering where, you know, it's, it's rather excruciating to have to let go of these things that you haven't been able to let go of in life. Now, you know, you're getting closer and closer to the face of truth, to the face of God. And so these purities have to be burned away before you, you can really come in, in direct, direct vision and union with that face. So it's hard and some it's, it's easier or harder depending upon the, the thickness of your karma. And, um, so that's, that's purgatory. So. Then lower than that is transmigration or wandering in samsara. This is where you're not really oriented toward truth. You haven't developed a clear enough intuition of God in this life or, or of absolute truth, whatever it should be called. And so you're, you, you, you end up going to other states of existence and those states may, may be better or worse, but, you know, you're, you're like moving horizontally from, you know, you're wandering, you're, you're, you know, and uh, it's not a particularly auspicious state because, you know, God knows where you will end up, you know, turning in, into different forms, you know, attracted to different worlds that don't last and you go on and on and on. And uh, you'll, you'll have to get back to something like the human form. You may lose the human form at that point, become other sorts of beings who are not as capable of directly experiencing divine reality and absolute truth. That's what the human being is, according to the Buddhists, is the human state hard to attain, 
is the only state from which enlightenment can really be reached. And they say it's, it's, it's as rare to attain this state as imagine, you know, there's a, there's a plank of wood with a big hole in it floating out in the ocean somewhere. And a sea turtle at one time might surface and put his head through that plank, you know, and then swim with that plank around his neck. But that's not going to happen very often. And it says it's it's that rare to reach the human state. And only from the human state can one truly reach enlightenment or, or, or liberation. And this is in, in uh, Islam, in the Quran, this is what is called the amana, um, the trust. And, and it says, um, uh, Allah offered the trust to the heavens, the earth, and the hills, but they were... Uh, afraid of it, and they ran away from it. That's too much responsibility for us. And they say, and, and he says, and man, and man assumed it. So man has the trust. Then it says, lo, he hath proved a tyrant and a fool. Well, that's another story. But, you know, we, we as, as Schoen and the traditionalists would say, we're the axial or central beings for this state of existence. We're the center of the whole thing. And that's unpopular nowadays because we say, well, we've been so destructive to nature and, and we're the weird animal. All the other animals are cool, but the human beings are weird. And wouldn't it be better if we were all raccoons or something? Well, no, we have to be human beings because we have a, we have an immense destiny that we've largely forgotten. That's one of the tragedies of our time. So wandering in samsara is not a good idea. And then, you know, the, the, the lowest of the five is hell where you have turned away you have turned away from god you've said no you've probably give, been given a chance to 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 know god and see him and you'd say no i don't want that i want to be me and god is god he has no uh has no rights over me and i don't want i now, now I, I don't even believe in him, in him anymore and i, I i'm going to hold on to my self-will and my way of doing things and Okay, God may be able to control me in, in every other way, but one thing he can't take away from me, one thing that is mine, is my self-determination, is I, I can see myself damned. I can, I can destroy myself for all eternity, and that's something not even God can prevent me from doing. You know, people get in that, that state. They get, get, they get that defiant. And those are the people who, who end up in hellfire for God knows how long. I do not believe that hellfire is literally eternal. I'm following the traditionalists in this because it would be sort of a shame if God's eternity, you know, had as a dark partner, which was hell forever. That's kind of a problem. And that's what people complain about Manichaeism as whether it actually said that. I don't know, but that's what they think, think of Manichaeism as saying radical dualism between principles of good and principles of evil. I don't believe that. But hell might as well be eternal because every split second of it is like an eon, you know. So it's because it's that hard. So so anyway, Schoen just goes over the different, you know, the different uh, afterlives from the different traditions and sees them more or less as a hierarchy, uh, talking about different states of soul, you know, from, from the most purified to the most rebellious and corrupt. So one thing I should say about afterlife, after my wife's mother passed on, I had a dream about her. And you're, uh, um, so you lived in San Rafael, right? right? I sure did. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So you remember San Rafael High School? Yes, I live nearby. Yeah, right. And so and so remember Summit Drive that came up from uh, San Pedro Road and went over the, the little ridge and then and then turned into Deer Park Drive and came down. I lived uh, right in that neighborhood by, by Dominican. Yeah, College. that's yeah. right. Yeah. So so I, I was you know I was living in um, here in Kentucky at the time, but I went back there and and I saw. Um, I was standing there and looking down into the into the, the you know down the hill where San Rafael High School was, and on the uh, on the upslope th th there was a new building. It, it was like a several story uh, wooden building, and you know, but more or less on, on the grounds of of San Rafael High School. And I looked in the low the lowest of the stories. There was my wife's mother sitting there alone in a room looking sad and in that room there was just one little vase with a single flower in it and that and that was her afterlife you know and I looked at that and I said well you know I guess she isn't in hell <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, because it was like saying she just didn't get it. You know, she didn't, she had to go back to kindergarten, the lowest of, you know, of the stories of this building on, on, on the grounds of the school is like, you know, first grade or kindergarten. You have to go back and start over and learn your spiritual ABCs because you didn't get it this time. And so she, and she had her little vase and her single flower, which was like her, her, you know, little helping of, of, of the mercy of God, you know, and it was there. And, you know, it, it, just, it was just going to be a long, a long course she would have to take to learn what she needed to learn because she was kind of clueless. And, you know, somebody who's clueless will sometimes get mean because they know something's terribly wrong and everybody else seems to, have to, to understand something they don't understand. And so they get, you know, it's hard on them and sometimes they get mean. And I think that's what happened to her. So, so, you know, it's, I, I saw that, that she was, you know, she, she, she was starting over, but starting in a better way, hopefully, you know, so. Well, in all of these accounts, one theme that I see that uh, seems to pervade them all is that the soul remains intact. The, something of the character, the personality, yeah, uh, yeah. Does, it's not extinguished. You don't just dissolve into the uh, pool of consciousness. No, or if you do, it takes an awful lot of development, you know. I mean, I mean, uh, and, and in a certain sense, I don't think you ever do, because if you ever existed, then you do exist because, because in God's eternity, you know, he sees all past and future as one and, and your eternal potentiality within him is never annihilated. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, it sort of goes without saying for me that, you know, as they say, human consciousness survives bodily death. You know, I mean, I, I took that for granted more or less in everything I said, didn't try to prove it because it's, it's so, uh, you know, obvious to me that I didn't, you know, I forgot that I had to prove it. <laughs> well, there are many ways human consciousness might survive uh, without there being a, an intact uh, personality. Well, uh, 
what is, I mean, there's the personality which, which is composed of all of your identifications and your memories, you know, and, and all of it. So see, all those memories might go. I mean, why do you need to remember all the details of your life in the next life, of your past life? You don't. So in a certain sense, but, but, but consciousness, I mean, I mean, I am is, is a very deep thing. And Shankara, the, the great Vedantic sage Shankaracharya said in one of his writings, now we, we think of, of me saying I am as, as, a, as an expression of ego, and so as a sort of a limitation on, on, on the vast ocean of consciousness. Now I'm just little me saying I am. And that's true. In a certain sense, it's a veil. It's, it's, it's something that, that, that hides the greater reality. But Shankara also said, the very fact that you think, you say to yourself, I am me, is uh, a sign of the Atman, of, of, of the absolute witness within you, of, of, of the divine I am within you, that transcends the ego. So the ego is not just a, a veil over over, over the, the, the self with a capital S. It's also a sign of a self, the self with a capital S. So that's interesting because we're, we're not for nothing were we born. Not for nothing did did we you know become whoever we think we are. Um, yet yet certainly our narrow vision of of reality is based a lot upon the development of an artificial ego based upon the identification with various things. I am this in the world. I, I have this. I've had these experiences or, you know, even, even in the inner world, these are, are the inner archetypes that I identify with. Oh, well, you know, it, it's a complex of ego and it is to be transcended. But on the other hand, uh, it, it has a significance that, that, that you can't simply be discounted, you know, Earlier, you talked about karma, and as I recall, you you said there has to be divine justice; otherwise, God wouldn't be perfect. And yeah. uh, uh, but karma is typically associated with reincarnation, and I know yeah. the traditionalists yeah. tend uh, not to accept reincarnation, at least the popular versions of it. I think that reincarnation might be our, our best stab at trying to describe something far more complex than human language allows for. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's that's correct. That's correct. Because now here we, we can get to what Rene Guénon said about that, you know, and, and Guénon wrote some wonderful things on Vedanta, including a, a man and his becoming according to the Vedanta, which is a classic and probably one of the first books that really dealt with the essence of, of Vedantic teachings in any Western language. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, he, it's a, an early classic of Western writing on, on Indian religion. And, um, but he, he would say, well, you know, the, 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 the doctrine of reincarnation was never really traditionally taught. Now, I don't know about that. There's an awful lot of swamis who, would, who I think have come forward and say, sorry, we've always taught that. You know, so he may have been a little abrupt in saying that, but his reason for saying it is very interesting because it may be in a Upanishad. I forget exactly where it came from, but it's from a Hindu scripture 
where it says Brahman, the absolute, is the one and only transmigrant. Only Brahman transmigrates. Now that is a mysterious thing to say. Because the absolute is exists everywhere in all places and times, you know, in everything and beyond everything. So how could that absolute reality come down into a little soul that transmigrates from body to body? I mean, you know, I mean, it's 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 a it's almost a it's a paradoxical statement. Um, so if 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 you know the absolute is the one and only transmigrant, then it's something like saying um, the the fact that that there's a single soul which I call me, you know, Charles Upton, and then I move, Charles Upton moves to another, another body in another lifetime in which he's no longer called Charles Upton, he's called somebody else. You know, that, that, that is a, is a lower level projection of, of something deeper, which ultimately is that um, the absolute is the only transmigrant because the absolute actually can't transmigrate, is already wherever the, 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 the transmigrating soul would end up, the absolute Brahman is already there. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's very hard to talk about. But in other words, it's, it's, it's saying that um, at, at the very least, in, in reincarnation is sort of a lower level, relatively illusory experience that, that, that is transcended by the realization of God, of the absolute. And that's that's pretty much what the Hindus say, and even the Buddhists, you know, I, I mean, for them, reincarnation is, is an unfortunate uh, occurrence. You know, one of the things, you know, Gaynon was did, didn't like the idea of, of what the spiritualists were saying about reincarnation, because, you know, their attitude was more, you know, spiritual evolution. You know, for each lifetime, you get better and better and better. It's wonderful. If you don't succeed in this lifetime, you could just reincarnate and, and, and pick up where you left off and, and move ahead. And he, he didn't like that so much because that's not what the Hindus and Buddhists said. They said, move ahead or maybe you're going to move backwards. Now, in other words, you're wandering in a samsara and what you have to do is get out, get off the wheel of birth and death. That's the goal, not just getting better and better lifetimes because they won't necessarily be better. Karma is imponderable. Sometimes, you know, you do good. And, and then you get better and then you get complacent and you start to do evil and then you get worse and God knows what's going to happen. So just try to get out of that, that whole, um, you know, transcend becoming and come into being where you're not just almost something or almost, you know, become who you're supposed to be or, or not quite, you know, go into being where, where who you are always is in God, you know, that, that's, that's the, uh, that's liberation. <clears throat> so anyway, um, Ginon talked about three things. He said, there is reincarnation, there is metempsychosis, and there is transmigration. And he accepted metempsychosis and transmigration and said reincarnation, at least literally understood as an illusion. The reincarnation is the idea that, that one soul goes from body to body, you know, in, 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 a, in a horizontal line. And uh, he said, 
experiences, and, and there definitely there are stories of people who remember former lifetimes very clearly. Sometimes in India, the child would say, oh, yeah, you know, the, 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 they took a trip to the neighboring village and the child will say, oh, yeah, I, I used to I used to live here. And they say, you know, and then, huh? My name was so and so. And oh, there's my aunt, you know, and, and, and they check it out. And it's true. You know, I mean, he does remember the lifetime of this other person. You know, in fact, I had an experience like that my, when my wife and I were living in Petaluma in a dinky little apartment. My father came in a dream and said, it's time to move into your grandmother's house, which the family still own. And so we did. But uh, what happened is the lady who was there, who had been a longtime tenant, ended up being evicted, you know, and here, here's, here's some karma I may have to deal with. And, and she passed on pretty soon after that. So, you know, and we, my wife and I more or less needed that to survive, and yet somebody had to pay for it. Um, and what's interesting is there's a kid who, who was born after she passed on, you know, another, somewhere else in the neighborhood, and, and he came over to the house once, I forget for what, he looked around, and said, looked around, and said, "Oh, I used to live here." You know, I said, "Oh, yeah." <laughs> you know, so this is pretty, pretty interesting. But what Gainon would say about this is that uh, this is psychic inheritance, metempsychosis. Somebody dies, and they release the psychic material. And the people who release psychic material are people who are not completely integrated. I mean, if you're a saint, all your psychic material is transmuted and, and offered to the spirit. Whereas if somebody is pretty disorient, disoriented or disintegrated in their life and they die, they'll leave behind a lot of material. This is where you get ghosts, you know, where people you know, an alcoholic dies somewhere and he, and he, and apparently he doesn't know he's dead and, and his ghost is still walking around trying to go to the same bars and, you know, this kind of story, um, or, or people who have died in violence and, 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 or, you know, and haunt, haunt the places where they were murdered and all of this. This is people wh whose souls are not integrated, leave behind what Ganon would call psychic residues or psychic corpses. And this is why he didn't like spiritualism as it was practiced in his time, because he said that these mediums are just calling up these psychic corpses, you know, who, who are not the complete human being, just some shadow of the human being left behind, you know. And uh, so he went a little far. He said, well, it's impossible to contact the dead because they're an entirely different state. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe the dead can contact us. I don't think it's a good idea to try to contact the dead in that sense with, with, you know, like with mediums. It's not a healthy thing for, for them or for us. But if, you know, by God's permission or God's command, they are able to come back and tell us something, that's a different level. You know, that's what I think. But in any case, uh, he, he didn't like what the spiritualists were up to with, you know, you know, oh, there's, there's, uh, there's Uncle Joe. Uh, you know, I, I see him fishing in the next world, and and the, the relative says, "Oh, that's God, that's Uncle Joe. He loved to fish." You know, well, <laughs> this is not like the experiences people are are, are reporting with near death experiences. This is kind of a, a psychic shadow 
of what the, who the person used to be. You know, it's a different thing. So, so Guénon had a problem with the spiritualists, but he said the, the, the stories of reincarnation, it's like you inherit stuff. And, uh, you know, like someone passes away and you inherit their library or, or maybe some of their clothes. <laughs> and, you know, you wear the clothes of, of the person who's passed on. You read their books, you know, um, and, and they're obviously affecting you by what they left behind. But does that mean that you are their reincarnation? That, that you, you know, no. Uh, so and, and so the people who pass on can actually, you know, leave memories that other people can pick up. And so you remember being that other person because you inherited their memory. You know, that that's that's the way he, he explained that. And he said, now, transmigration, on the other hand, is is the motion of the soul through various worlds, higher or lower worlds beyond death. You know, and and but it's not just coming back to this to another human body over and over again. So he accepted transmigration, but not uh, not reincarnation. So what's interesting with me, I had a, I, I more or less remembered some former lifetimes. And the two I remember were not very positive. Once after my, uh, my Aunt Barbara's husband, Charles passed away from brain cancer. And uh, I went down to visit her. She lived in Beverly Hills, California. I went down to visit her as a, as a child or like I was 14 or something like that. And, and um, somehow down there, I, I remembered another lifetime. I said, oh, I, I, was, I was this junky jazz musician not a very good jazz musician, probably a saxophone player who uh, was a junkie and died early of an overdose. I remember being that person, you know, and this is funny because as a child, I would call my mother and father Mommyo and Daddyo, which which is is, you know, beat beat lingo, mm -hmm. beat lingo, I should say. And uh, I hadn't heard those terms. I, I just picked them up. That's the way I talk. You know, that's what I called them. So and then I said, oh, yeah. And then then you think, well, I got I got that way of talking from being a, having been a beatnik jazz musician junkie. You know, OK, that's the little piece of something there. And the other one was apparently another lifetime. Was I was a member of the SS who was um, part of Hitler's staff at uh, the Berghof in, in near Berchtesgaden, uh, you know, his, his mountain retreat. And uh, how do I know that? Well, when I was young, I invented an insignia for myself, which was like a combination of a, a swastika and, and one of those um, uh, those SS symbols for the SS, you know, the, 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 one of the rune symbols, you know, which represents lightning, I think. So it was that the rune symbol with a circle around it and a line through it, so it looked halfway like an SS symbol and halfway like a swastika. And that was my insignia, you know. And then I remember there was a rock, you know, because we lived on the shore of San Francisco Bay, and there's a rock sitting on the, on the, on the shore with a particular gray bunched up quality, you know, um, hard to describe, but 
but I called that rock the eagle's nest for some unknown reason. Why would I call it that? It had nothing to do with eagles, you know. But then I was looking on, on Google Images and I saw, I was looking at the, the uh, Berkhoff, Hitler's Berkhoff, and I saw, you know, a rock that looked very much like that. It was much bigger, you know. And I said, well, that looks just like the rock that, that was off my, you know, on, on, the, on the shore of, of the bay as I was a child. And, and of course, uh, he, he called uh, the Berkhoff the eagle's nest. That was, that was his, his name for his mountain retreat. So I said, oh, yeah. And then beyond that, when I was in British Columbia, <clears throat> living in this, you know, room with, there was nothing in the room but a, a scrap of foam rubber, rubber and my sleeping bag. And I was, I was eating food from a hot plate and this and there. And, but next to me was this, this little astrologer. I mean, he was, he was, so short, he was almost a midget, you know, he had long, you know, longer than shoulder length, straight, fine hair and a fine little beard. And he was like an elf, you know, and uh, one time he says, I had a dream about you. And I said, what? Oh, well, I dreamt that you were a Nazi hiding out in the Himalayas, uh, pretending to be a Tibetan holy man, you know. I said, oh, Yeah. <laughs> You know, which is interesting given that, you know, Heinrich Harrer, who wrote seven years in Tibet, was actually an SS officer who who made it to Tibet out of internment in India uh, during World War Two and spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama, you know, and, and taught him about the West and and, you know, and, and helped him do little little works of irrigation. And it was a very interesting book if you ever read that. But he was an SS it was made into a movie as well. Yeah, yeah, with um, Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so so anyway. Um, oh yeah, so, so I was a Nazi, and then the other the, the other part of the Tibetan connection is when I was a child, my mother had a dresser uh, in, in her bedroom, and uh, there. Po- you know, at the bottom part of the dresser were these curtains, these maroon colored curtains. And out of that dresser to me came a smell. It was very distinctive. And it, the smell wasn't actually there. I mean, I checked it out, but, but it was sometimes you know, I associated that with a smell. And as a child, I believed that a dragon lived in that dresser, you know, behind the maroon curtains. And then then in this life, I actually encountered that smell. And it, w- it was with some meeting with Tibetan lamas, and that was Tibetan incense. Mm. I said, oh, I remember that smell. That's, oh, yeah. And guess what? They wore robes of exactly the same color as those curtains of my mother's dress. So what you have is all these reflections of other lifetimes, you know, in this lifetime. Well, that's real, you know. But the funny thing is, um, you know, that, that, that jazz musician probably um, died after, after I had been born, right? So how could I be the reincarnation of him? Or that, or, you know, how, how, how could, you know, it, it didn't work out. If, 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 if I was a, an SS officer uh, at Hitler's Berghof, you know, um, I, I couldn't, you know, time-wise, I, that couldn't have been an earlier lifetime 
of the junkie jazz musician. In other words, it didn't line up. Presuming so that reincarnation follows linear time. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't follow. Yeah, it doesn't follow linear time. But but you could say in a, in a simpler way, when someone dies, um, you, you, you and you are alive, you can pick up psychic residues from them, and you can become a reincarnation of them somewhere later than than, than your own birth. You know, so now I, I remember this happening with William Blake. You know, there was there was a moment when. Blake came to me, and then after that, I was sort of the reincarnation of William Blake. But, you know, uh, I wasn't born the reincarnation of William Blake. I became the reincarnation of William Blake at the age of 18 or something, you know. So the, the, this shows that psychic material from people who have passed on is there on, in some dimension, and uh, it can become part of your psychic makeup either at birth or sometime later than birth, you know, and, and this is more or less what metempsychosis is. And that's my experience of something similar to reincarnation, but not exactly literally re reincarnation. Well, it involves some kind of an affinity with uh, two particular individuals, one in the present yeah. And, yeah. and one in the past. And it's also suggestive of the possibility, perhaps, of something akin to a group soul. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's as if it's as if you're different branches on the same tree. Not not like you know you're you're connected branch to branch as if by a, a, a parasitic vine, but you know you're connected through the root. You're connected through the origin of that whole family of souls. You know, and uh, you know as much as I, I hate to refer to anything. Uh, of of a new of a new age uh, variety. There's something like that in the in uh, the Seth material, yes, you know. Sir. Yeah, and 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 I think I think because yeah, there, there's there there are problems with the Seth material, especially you would see how essentially anti-Christian and anti-religious he was. But uh, there there are some definite truths in there as well. So. Yeah, you probably don't know, Charles, but I uh, actually am the co-author of a th an alternative theory to reincarnation known as archetypal synchronistic resonance. Ah, is what I've been saying anything like that? Well, it could be, uh, possibly. The irony is that not so long ago, uh, I wrote a foreword to James Matlock's book, uh, uh, about reincarnation. I think it's titled Signs of Reincarnation, in which I had to acknowledge that some of the evidence, particularly the physical evidence, where the death wounds of uh, one person, the previous personality, show up as the birthmarks of the young child who remembers that personality, I began to think that archetypal synchronistic resonance may cover many examples, but not necessarily all of them. Yeah, well, um, so, so anyway, that, that's, that's more or less what René Guénon said about reincarnation and et cetera, et cetera. So, René so, Guénon didn't have access to the immense database of reincarnation cases that we have today. Right, right. But, um, and, and certainly there, there, there's a lot of evidence suggestive of reincarnation, but it could be explained. Just as well, I think, by metempsychosis. So, 
I just don't like the feeling of reincarnation. I don't say in my next lifetime, I think I want to be, I don't do that. I say, oh, do you, if I have to come back to this, to this God for a second place, you know, I deserve what I get. That's basically my attitude to reincarnation. We're going back for a moment to the idea of the judgment, and and you alluded briefly to the past life review and how, or the life review, how that might be akin to a, a form of judgment. Uh, it, it's only reported in a small percentage of near death experiences. However, uh, it does suggest that if you're if you were Hitler, for example, and you were forced in your life review to experience moment by moment the pain that you caused in every single person who was affected yeah. by your behavior, uh, that seems to me to be um, incredibly profound. Yeah, that, that's, you know, five or six eons in hellfire there, you know. It might not last forever, but like I say, it would seem <laughs> like it was forever. Well, Charles, this has been an interesting conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to bring up by way of conclusion? You know, it's important, I think, to understand more about the quality and possibilities of the afterlife. But if we get too glib about it and say, oh, yeah, I, I know how that works, you know, uh, something about the value of death, you know, of, of the moment of truth, where, you know, you, you encounter the great mystery and, and you have to put yourself in God's hands because you don't really know what's going to happen. You know, you have to remember that too. Let, let's not get too lightweight about it because I'm remembering, you know, things on uh, near-death experiences I've seen. Somebody has a book, you know, The Joy of Dying, you know, isn't it great? We've all been to this wonderful place and, and we know that someday we'll get to go back. And isn't it lovely, you know? Well, I hope you can go back and I hope it will be lovely. And yet, you know, I mean, death, death should be, should be, um, it should be magnificent and tremendous and, and something that, that humbles us. You know, because if, if, if we get too glib about it, we may uh, we may not go into it with the right attitude. You know, that's what I'm, you know. Uh, you know, when, when I think about death, you re remember um, Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal, you know, and <laughs> where the night, the night, you know, Max von Sydow was playing chess with death. That's great. You think you can, we, I think we think we can play chess with death and maybe win you know, but there was a point when, when you know, the angel of death finally comes to the people, all except the young poet who in his innocence, you know, somehow is, is able to escape and come back and, and live a life on this earth, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, or, or, you know, the, the, the actor, whatever he was, poet, actor, whatever he was. Uh, but death, death comes to them. And uh, this is an amazing moment in, in, in cinematography where, you just see their faces, you know, looking upon death, you know, look, looking upon, you know, the mysterium tremendum, the great mystery, and, you know, looking into the majesty, you know, of death. Not horror, but not just, you know, the, 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 law, the eternal Caribbean cruise either, you know, looking 
looking at that at that face of of the great mystery and and just just you know that, that was that was wonderful acting you know imagine talk about method acting and you know look 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 for how you would feel if 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 you knew you know death was th- three feet away and, and and staring calmly into the depths of your soul you know and, and they did a wonderful job so well i have one other thought i would like to bring up um and it has to do with the uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition of the, the toll houses. The oh, yeah. idea that, if I understand it correctly, it, it's, it's a process whereby, bit by bit, before you can face the divine, you are stripped of all your pretensions. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that, that has to happen. Now... The Eastern Orthodox have a problem with purgatory or with the word purgatory because they say, well, that's, that's the, we don't believe in purgatory. That's Catholic. Catholic. But the thing is, they do believe that the soul is sometimes sent temporarily to hell uh, for purification. So how that's different from purgatory, I, can, I can't tell you. And the, the toll houses is a doctrine that is not, um, it's not strictly dogmatic. It's a, a pious opinion that you're allowed to believe. And, you know, such a, a great saint as uh, St. John Maximovich of Shanghai and San Francisco, whose relics are in repose in the Cathedral of the Holy Virgin Joy of All Who Sorrow on Geary Street. Uh, he believed in them. And essentially, it, it's a little bit like the Egyptian Book of the Dead, not the Tibetan. You know, you you... you and there's some icons where the soul is climbing a ladder and there are demons below trying to, you know, yank the soul down to hell. Well, one of the reasons that the Orthodox, some Orthodox don't like that idea is because it, it makes it seem like if you make a misstep in the next world, then you're damned. Whereas, you know, that that that, that is a doctrine that can't be. Uh, that doesn't hold water. You know, if, if in Christian terms you have accepted the atonement of Christ and, you know, are, are willing to, to bear your cross, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, sooner or later you're bound for glory. Um, and so, so you don't have to worry about making a mistake in the next world and ending up in hell. But, you know, there are states of purgation and, and there are delays in that process. You know, the idea of the toll houses <clears throat> it's, it's like it's like coming to a customs shed at a border, you know, and, and they check they check your baggage and they check your papers and you know are they going to let you through, you know, and um, each one of of the uh, toll houses has to do with with let's say one of the seven deadly sins or something on that order, and you know if if you've had more of a problem with one sin or another you'll you'll be there longer sitting in the waiting room until you know the uh, the bureaucratic process. The Kafka-esque bureaucratic process is finally completed, you know. But uh, there's really something to that because those are different attachments and different veils over the heart that have to be um, removed um, b- before you are not just worthy but are capable of being in 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 the direct presence of God. So, yeah, that that's it's an interesting. Uh, Interesting doctrine. It's more like the, the the Egyptian Book of the Dead, though, where you know you go through different um, levels in the other world, and you have to have the right passwords, and you have to you know, say the right things to the different guardians. You know, it's similar to that, but it's probably a little more morally uh, sound 
because it isn't, it isn't just a technical process where you know the right words. You have to have the right disposition. It also reminds me a bit of uh, the myth of Inanna, the Sumerian goddess who oh, yeah, passes through true. seven yeah. gates and gives up uh, powers, uh, her godly powers all the way until she enters the afterlife pretty much naked. Yeah, and, and pretty much like a, you know, a corpse <laughs> down, at, you know, down where Eresh Kigal reigns. Yeah, and th th that's very much like in the Vedanta, you, you know, there's a divesting of the, of the koshas, of the different sheaths of the Atma. You know, what's it, the physical sheath, the uh, emotional sheath, the mental sheath, the causal sheath, whatever, the sheath of bliss, however that, that, that is, is said. And th th these are, are different, different levels of manifestation of the absolute, but, you know, that you have to go beyond the manifestations and the reflections and get to the thing itself. And, and the, actually, that, that's what Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils was about. It, it, isn't, it wasn't given as that in, uh, and I forget which of that is in tradition, which is in, in uh, gospel itself. I see her as dancing before John the Baptist, in which, you know, the, the, this, this, this is the soul divesting itself of the different veils that, that, that separated from the absolute. And when finally she's completely divested, then, you know, she's supposed to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So you know, he's beheaded and, and he loses his head. And in Sufi symbolism, that represents the loss of ego. That's the very symbol. You know, the ego is headstrong. So, you know, off with her head, you know, the, the, the heart, the heart is, is central, but the head is always looking in one direction or another and is not completely at one with the heart. So the head has to come off. Well, what a delightful, uh, <laughs> in a way, delightful conversation, Charles. Delightful and, and profound at the same time. And, and a great pleasure once again for me to be with you. It's interesting because every time I do one of these, you know, what I know about a particular subject sort of further gels for me, you know, because it's, it's great. It's great to do this because, you know, it's, it's good to, 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 to see, to see what you, we're just about to know and then, you know, see it a little more clearly. Well, I know you write quite a bit about that fine, uh, what would I call it, a vibration that comes off of the absolute, sort of the edge of, of knowledge. Yeah, well, and that, that's what everything is, you know. That's the, that's the logos. That, that's the, the what, what, what did I say? One of the things I wrote in that Sarfati group, it's like, the, the primal vibration which which the Hindus uh, express as Aum uh, is a vibration between the poles of existence and non-existence. Mm -hmm. You know that's the peak in the trough. You know and and uh, you know there just begins to be a universe and is the universe God or is the universe other than God? Well, you can't say one or the other. If the universe is God, then God is simply the collection of all the stuff, and you can't say that. But if the universe is other than God, th then it, then how can it even appear? You know, so it goes back and forth between those two uh, propositions, if you were, and and that's the primal tone that the Hindus have, have done an awful lot of writing on. You know, the, the primal tone of existence. You know that that uh, that finally 
spreads out and becomes everything we see and everything we experience. Charles Upton, thank you so much for being with me today. As always, it's been a delight. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.